You've likely heard the expression before at some point, it's good to have friends in high places. In some cases, nothing nefarious is meant by that. It's simply a witness to the reality that knowing people in positions of authority can oftentimes open doors of opportunity. In some cases, however, um, a criminal might have his crimes overlooked or excused as a result of having a connection to someone in a position of power. For the Christian, however, when you hear that expression, it's good to have friends in high places, perhaps it's an opportunity for you and me to have our minds drawn to the reality that we have the greatest friend in the highest place. And if we start to think about that, perhaps we'll also think of the benefits that come with that. Generally speaking, I think Christians, gospel-believing Christians, do a very good job of reflecting upon the incarnation. The incarnation, that moment when the eternally begotten Son of God, who is forever in relationship and with the Father, took on human flesh. He became conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. I think Christians, generally speaking, do a good job of remembering that. I mean, we have a day on our calendar that is committed to remembering the day in which Jesus Christ was born. So generally speaking, I think Christians do a good job of remembering the incarnation. I also think that if you went to just about any gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church, you'd expect to hear from week in to week out on the Lord's Day, you'd expect to hear about the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in fulfillment and in accordance with the Scriptures. You'd expect to hear that he was buried and that he rose from the grave on the third day according to the scriptures. You'd expect to hear that he was the vicarious substitutionary atonement for our sins. That we deserve the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. But Jesus stood in our place and he absorbed the wrath of God. You'd expect to hear that, our resurrection, that his resurrection is joined to our justification. and Things of that nature. And I think by and large, you do hear those kind of things in gospel-believing churches on a regular basis, week in, week out. But what about the ascension? What about the ascension? Years ago, when I preached about Jesus' ascension in Luke's gospel, I began with an illustration concerning how Staten Island has been known as the forgotten borough. I referenced an article from the Daily News with, um, I guess, Staten Island residents, if I remember correctly, you know, uh, listing or, you know, giving their complaints to the mayor at the time concerning Staten Island being a forgotten borough. I referenced an article in Staten Island Live. Staten Island had been known and has been known as the forgotten borough. And if you remember, it it was a while ago, the aim of me referencing that illustration was to say this, that oftentimes with the ascension, it could be like the forgotten piece of the puzzle of the amazing work that Christ has done on our behalf. You're going to see, Lord willing, next week that his ascension was for us. A lot of language in the New Testament that can be overlooked that he ascended for us. I remember some years ago, too, when we were talking about Staten Island being a forgotten borough, there were people who moved here uh, from Queens, and they said, I don't know if it's the forgotten borough. I think Staten Islanders are keeping it a secret. They thought it was like New York's best-kept secret. And when we come to the doctrine of the ascension, my hope in these next two weeks is that you will have a passion to make sure that the ascension of Jesus Christ is not Christianity's best kept secret. By God's grace, we'll grow increasingly fluent in communicating the significance of the ascension. The ascension was a part of historical creeds like the Apostles' Creed, like the Nicene Creed. Both include the words, he ascended to or he ascended into heaven. To go back even earlier, 
The ascension appears to have been part of an early Christian creed. Some think it might have been a hymn. You might remember this from when we studied 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul may very well be referring to an early Christian creed or an early Christian hymn when he said he, or who, speaking of Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A reference to the ascension from the earliest points of Christian history. No surprise that it would be, considering how significant the event was and what we're going to study today and the reaction of the disciples and so on. The ascension, however, uh, sometimes it's not in the foreground of our minds the way it ought to be. It's possible that to many it is, to use language from Kevin D. Young, little more than a heavenly transit system. That's how the Son of God got back home. And I think that's how people sometimes look at it. Like the ascension is just, you know, he went from point A to point B, and that's how he got there, the ascension. There's a lot of significance to the ascension. This is, this is my hope. And this week, and Lord willing, next week, I want us to look at the event. I want us to look at the event of the ascension, and we're going to draw out some implications along the way. But Lord willing, next week, I want us to grow increasingly fluent in our understanding of the significance of the ascension. I want us to look at texts that I may just reference in passing today, but I want us to look at them so you'll see all of these texts in the New Testament, and some in the Old Testament as well, that point to the significance of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we'll look at the event, and we'll make some references to the significance of it, but then Lord willing, next week we'll spend... Uh, time looking at other passages in the New Testament particularly that hone in on the significance of the ascension. So we'll start with the former, looking at the event, and we'll make our way to the latter, Lord willing, next week. We are right now at what's been called a hinge point in Luke's two-volume history. Remember, volume one, Gospel of Luke, volume two, the book of Acts. This is known to be a kind of hinge point. Why? Because Luke ends the Gospel of Luke with a reference to the Ascension. And here at the beginning of the book of Acts, he's kind of rehashing that a little bit from a little bit of a different angle, giving a little bit of a different view, so to speak. But he's going to pick up at the Ascension. So this is kind of a hinge point right here. We left off, if you remember, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, with Jesus providing his disciples with their mission. Now as we get into the text, just a little bit by way of review... You remember that likely because Jesus was referencing the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles having Old Testament texts in mind, maybe Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2, and thinking, okay, the coming of the Holy Spirit, when I look at Ezekiel 36, when I look at Joel 2, and I start looking at like what's coming next in Ezekiel 37 and Joel 3, is the restoration of Israel coming. Because in, the, in those passages, it seems to be connected. So likely prompted by hearing Jesus talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, they asked Jesus if this was going to be the time that he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And you remember that Jesus told them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, or my witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we left off with verse 8. Jesus reminds them of who they were called to be. They were called to be witnesses. Now, I mentioned at small group this week, and I'll mention it here, that a lot of times when you hear the word witnessing in current Christian context, cultural context, you think of evangelism. Somebody might say, oh, I witnessed to somebody this week. 
And indeed you did. You bore witness of the reality of Jesus' Christ, death, and resurrection, and so on. But most immediately in the book of Acts, when you see that language, that they were called to be witnesses, we'll see this as we go through the book of Acts, they were called to be witnesses in that immediate, literal sense of eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see that as we go through the book of Acts. That's one thing I'd call your attention to. We'll even see a little bit more of that as we go through Acts chapter 1. I want to remind you that Jesus called their attention to the matter before them, right? They had eschatological, that just means last things, last thing matters in their minds. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if you remember, I told you, I didn't think that was a crazy question. Don't forget, in Luke 24, we saw that Jesus opened their minds to comprehend the scriptures. Don't forget that Jesus had spent time over the interval of 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. So I don't think it's a crazy question that they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus doesn't correct their understanding of the nature of the kingdom. He addresses the time question, which is the question they asked. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But then what does he do? He calls their attention to what they are to be in that moment. You are to be my witnesses. They're going to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and they were to be his witnesses. I think that's important, because sometimes we can get caught up with things it doesn't have to necessarily be last things. It could be mundane things. It could be an overwhelming amount of things. It could be everyday things. There are plenty of things that you and I can get distracted by or caught up with that can keep us from doing what we're called to do. And one of the things that you are called to do is that you are called to be light in this dark world. You are called to be a witness, not in the immediate sense that they were witnesses, but you're called to bear witness of what they were bearing witness of. That Jesus Christ is the Lord who died for your sins and rose from the grave and he's the only way to the Father. So there's a lot of things that can take us away from that. I love the picture too that he gives them. That they are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I gave you a little bit of the mapping of that last week. But just picture how the gospel was meant to kind of go out. It was meant to be, if you will, centrifugal. It was to move away from the center and to be going out into all the world. What a beautiful picture. In a lot of ways, I think that's how, in a kind of microcosm way, we should look at Lord's Day gatherings. That as we gather together and we hear the word of God preached, how exciting would it be if people are going to the southern part of Staten Island further, or people are going to New Jersey, or people are going to Brooklyn, or people are going to the northern part of Staten Island, and so on. And from here, kind of radiating from the center, as it were, we are going out and looking for opportunities to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, with all that being said, that's just a little bit by way of reminder. That brings us to today's text. We begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, where we read, Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This happened. You do well to use your sanctified imagination to try to imagine this. Jesus had just finished speaking to them. We're going to see that, apparently, when we look at Luke's gospel, he was still speaking even as he was being taken up. We'll see that when we get there in a moment. He's giving them, as it were, some final instructions, some last words. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched. So before their very eyes, there he is, he's speaking to them. And all of a sudden, he just begins to rise and ascend. How awesome this moment must have been. He was taken up. 
It's interesting because they didn't witness the resurrection personally. They were witnesses to the fact that Jesus had resurrected, but they weren't in the tomb there just kind of watching and saying, okay, I think he's starting to move. I think he's moving right now. There he goes. There, I, I think I see the heartbeat. I think I see his eye flutter. They weren't witnesses that. They just saw, okay, he's obviously alive because there he is. He's got flesh and bone. We can touch him and so on. But they are witnesses directly of the ascension. They're watching it happen right before their very eyes. What a moment. I wonder if they called to mind that moment between the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 2. You'll remember that Elijah was to be taken up. He was to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. But before he was taken up, Elisha, kind of like his disciple, he asks him, well, Elijah asks Elisha, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? You see that in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. And you might recall that Elisha says that he would like a double portion of the Spirit that rested upon Elijah to rest upon him. Elijah says to him, you ask a hard thing. But then he ends up telling him this, if you see me as I'm taken up, then you'll know that you have what you've requested. And then you'll remember, they're walking along the way, not too long after that, I don't know the exact details, but as we go through 2 Kings, we find as they spoke with one another, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, and Elisha saw it. And the fact that Elisha saw it was a witness to the fact that he was going to get what he asked for, which was a double portion of the spirit that rested upon Elijah. I wonder... If as the apostles, having heard what Jesus said, that you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to receive the promise of the Father, I wonder if this event went through their minds as they saw Jesus going up and they saw him go up. It wasn't like he just vanished, just even as Elisha saw Elijah go up, they're seeing him. I mean, they didn't need any further affirmation that Jesus would send the Spirit. Jesus' word was enough. But maybe that was further impressing the stamp of that reality and the coming reality that they were going to enjoy. Can you imagine what it was like when the apostles saw this? Now, I want you to note here, this was unique. This wasn't like other times. During the interval of 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but then sometimes he would vanish from their eyes. Luke 24, verse 31, is one instance of this. With the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, Right? Jesus broke bread to them, and he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Their understanding, their eyes were opened. And we're told that their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. This was different. This wasn't like those other times. Because you could imagine, if it was like those other times, the apostles might be wondering, like, are we going to see him again? I mean, he's vanished before, like with that new glorified body, that resurrected body. He's able to do things like, you know, be in a room with locked doors with ease. He can go from one place to another and have these resurrection appearances with great swiftness. Maybe he's just going to appear again. There was a sense of finality that came with this. It wasn't like those other appearances and vanishings. This was an ascension where they knew this was the moment he had spoken about when he was going back to the Father. This is that moment didn't only have a sense of finality that came with it, it also had a sense of glory that came with it. We're told that a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, it's good for us to remember that in Old Testament and New Testament uh, contexts alike, 
Clouds, at times, appear as tokens of the presence of God. So a lot of times when you see clouds, like in the scriptures, I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment, we're not talking, to use one definition, about a visible mass of condensed water vapor floating in the atmosphere. A lot of times, we're talking about a tangible, visible revelation of God's glory, the likes of which Israel knew in the pillar of cloud that went before them by day, Exodus 13.21, or the bright cloud that covered those on the Mount of Transfiguration, out of which the voice of the Father was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Matthew 17, verse 5. This cloud appears to have been may very well have been a glorious and tangible witness to the Father's reception of the Son. And some people wonder if he just maybe went into a cloud and they just couldn't see him once he went into the cloud anymore. So you have different perspectives there. But I think we do well to think that the same Jesus who was placed in a lowly manger at his birth was now gloriously taken up into heaven and subsequently enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, we often, I think, appropriately speak about the resurrection as being proof. It's it's many things. It it was the moment where the Son of God was demonstrated to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, to use language from Romans 1. We talk about the, the resurrection in many ways, but oftentimes it's spoken of as being a kind of proof that the sacrifice of the Son was accepted by the Father. The ascension, I think, further stamps that. The fact that he was ascending to the Father and being received by the Father to his right hand. I think it's further proof of the Father's pleasure in the Son. Now, I want to fill out some details here. So we get some details in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I want us to go over to Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, to see some of the details that Luke does not rehearse in this next account that he did in the former account, which was the Gospel of Luke. So beginning at verse 50 and going through verse 51 of Luke 24, we read, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was departed from them and carried up into heaven. A couple of notes right there. And you might read that and say, wait, he led them out as far as Bethany? I thought he ascended from the Mount of Olives. And the answer is, yes, he did ascend from the Mount of Olives. You'll see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, that they returned from the Mount of Olives, returned from Jerusalem, from the Mount called Olivet. You see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. But very clearly, I want to call your attention to the fact that um, the village of Bethany was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Mark, in his gospel account, makes this connection very clear. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, an earlier part in Jesus' ministry, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. So the connection is clearly right there. There's no discrepancy. Not to mention, by the way, the one who wrote the former account is the same one who's writing the account in Acts. So they clearly overlap. Simply put, Bethany was located at or on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So when you see in Luke's gospel, he led them out as far as Bethany. It's the equivalent, essentially, of what you read in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. So there he was, in the vicinity of where he lodged, the final week of his teaching in the temple leading up to his crucifixion. You see that in Luke 21, verse 37. It was in that vicinity on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane that he prayed and that there was sweat mingled with blood that fell from his brow as he stood upon the brink of betrayal and suffering. It was there, in the vicinity of Bethany, upon the Mount of Olives, that he was about to ascend into heaven. And it was there, according to the angels in Acts 1.11, and according to the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 14.4, that would be the location, the place of the Lord's triumphant descent. His triumphant re-entry, if you will. And then Luke tells us, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So in the same vicinity where he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, there he is, the high priest par excellence, the only mediator between man of God. He lifts up his hands and doubtless in the minds of the apostles were pictures of the Old Testament priest. The high priest, for instance, Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. So here is Jesus acting as a go-between, between man and God. And what a picture. Even as he's lifting up his hands and speaking this blessing over them, he starts to ascend. What a picture of the mediator, the bridge between God and man. There he is. There are the apostles on earth. There is the Father enthroned in heaven, and he's about to be at the Father's right hand. And there he is, the mediator between man and God, right in between them and God, if you will. And he's praying a blessing over them. What a moment. What a moment. I don't miss some of the significance of that. He could pray a blessing and speak a blessing over them because to use language from Galatians 3, he had been made a curse for them. The only way you and I could ever be blessed is because the Son of God became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Now picture this as well, as he lifts those hands, right, and as he speaks this blessing over them, what was the blessing? We're not told exactly. You know, something, maybe he was speaking Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that was part of it. Maybe he was reminding them of other promises and that he would be with them always until the end of the age and so on. We don't know exactly, but we know what they could have seen with their eyes if they looked. As his hands were lifted, they would see those nail-scarred hands, So as this one begins to lift up his hands and he begins to ascend before their very eyes, the mediator between man and and God, his mediatorial sacrifice of himself is reminded, or they're reminded of it, in those scars that his hands bore. You think about this, of all the ways to leave the disciples, isn't it so fitting that the Lord Jesus leaves them with hands raised and is blessing them? To that end, I want you to listen to the words of J.C. Ryle when he wrote, Our Lord Jesus was gracious while he lived among his weak disciples. He was gracious in the very season of his agony on the cross. He was gracious when he rose again and gathered his scattered sheep around him. He was gracious in the manner of his departure from the world. It was the departure in the very act of blessing we may be assured that He is gracious now at the right hand of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a Savior ever ready to bless, abounding in blessings. I just want to encourage you not to lose sight of the compassion and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people, the the pendulum, I know, swings the complete opposite way where they can forget that Jesus is, you know, holy, 
and he's high and lifted up, and he's righteous, and the pendulum can swing so far where people just look at, you know, Jesus as though he were just like a buddy. You know, Jesus is my buddy. He's, you know, I'm just cool with him, and, you know, that's how we are. Uh, like, whoa, Jesus is a friend that is greater than any friend you can ever imagine. But at the same time, you don't want to diminish his holiness. He is the holy, eternally begotten Son of God who took on flesh. But at the same time, you don't want the pendulum to swing so far that you forget how kind and compassionate he is. Think of how kind the Lord Jesus Christ is. On the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the cross telling John, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ resurrecting and appearing to his apostles. Doubting Thomas becomes believing Thomas. Jesus didn't leave him by the wayside. He appears to him a week after Resurrection Sunday evening. He appears to Peter at the Sea of Tiberias and he gives him an opportunity to confess his love three times for the Lord Jesus Christ, even as he had confessed denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. What compassion! And here he is, lifting up his hands, blessing them as he goes. Whatever your view of the Lord Jesus Christ is, please make sure it is filled with kindness and compassion. There's never been a kinder person to ever walk the earth. And there, there's a lot of things. We've talked about this in, uh, in our studies of Roman Catholicism uh, in, our, in our Thursday night classes. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of things that can be wrong. And J.C. Ryle calls attention to this in, um, in his work on the, on the Gospel of Luke. Um, but to think of Mary as being kinder than the Lord Jesus Christ... That some people would have this perception that, you know, Jesus might be angry with you. So, you know what, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of tough to deal with. He's like an austere man, very righteous and all that. So you want to go to his mother because she'll be easier to deal with, right? She's a compassionate mother. So because Jesus is a little bit, you know, harder to deal with, a little bit firmer, maybe a little bit meaner or something like that, you want to go to his mom. That's blasphemous. There's never been anyone more kind than the Lord Jesus Christ, more compassionate than the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you just need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you feel like you've exhausted his kindness and compassion. Like, no, no, I've tried his compassion way too much. I've tested it, and I've pushed him too far. There's surely no compassion left for me. For anyone who will come, that well will never run dry. You can't exhaust his compassion and kindness. By God's grace, you just keep coming to it. And that's how you know by his grace you forever have access to it. Well, Luke continued saying, Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was uh, departed, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. We're told that he was carried into heaven. Carried into heaven. Now, I just encourage you to use maybe a little bit of sanctified imagination here, um, informed by the scriptures to whatever degree it can be. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus Christ entered into heaven before the throne room of God. If angels celebrated his birth, you look, Luke chapter 2 with the shepherds there, if they celebrated his birth, glory to God in the highest, what was it like when you have the thousands upon thousands of angelic hosts there when the Son of God ascends in this cloud of glory to the right hand of the Father? What was it like? Years ago, I was at a, um, a Red Bulls game. I, I think, I don't know if this would be the right way to classify it. It could be wrong. It might have been an international friendly because it was between the Red Bulls and FC Barcelona. And at that time, FC Barcelona had Ronaldinho. 
And if you know anything about soccer, a.k.a. football, um, if you know anything about that, you know that Ronaldinho, probably one of the best to ever play the game, the things that this man could do with a soccer ball, it just, it's, it's ridiculous to watch. It's impressive. So people were there, and most people who were there were not there to root for the Red Bulls. I think everybody pretty much knew Red Bulls aren't winning this game. I think everybody was happy when the Red Bulls scored a goal, but they did not win the game. But when Ronaldinho scored, and I don't remember if he scored more than once, but I know that during a penalty kick he scored, and I've been to sports games, I've been to hockey games and baseball games and basketball throughout my life, football, I never heard a stadium erupt the way that it erupted when Ronaldinho scored a goal at Red Bull Stadium or wherever the stadium was. It just erupted. The whole place just kind of lit up. And then shortly after that, people were cheering, Ronaldinho. These people are like, who is Ronaldinho to them? Who is Ronaldinho to me? It's like he, he hasn't done anything for me. He scored a goal. That was great. But people were like cheering. People were so excited. And can you imagine when the Lord Jesus Christ went back into heaven, when the angels saw him, do we think that that stadium at that moment was to exceed the praise and the glory that Jesus received when he went back into heaven? I will tell you, no. The eruption that must have occurred at that moment when the Son of God came. I don't know. It would be so appropriate. I don't know if it was the case that the language from Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is one of those enthronement psalms. That's how it's often classified. But people wonder, well, what was the exact context in which it was used? Was this enthronement psalm used when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6? Was it brought back after a battle when the Ark went out with them and then the Ark would come back? and then the people in, in, in Israel would celebrate when the ark came back as like a mighty conqueror because the ark was a representation of the throne of God and the presence of God? How appropriate would it be if the words of Psalm 24 were exclaimed as Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, angels celebrating, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, I don't know if that happened. I'm just saying it would be so appropriate if it happened. Jesus, like a mighty victor coming back from battle. He disarmed powers and principalities. He made naught of the works of the enemy. He bound the strong man. He set captives free. And he comes back like a victor, victorious into heaven. And it's as though they're saying, open up the gates. Let the king of glory come in. You can imagine the father saying to the son, using language from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What was it like in that moment? Doubtless it was glorious. Doubtless it was glorious. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, you'll remember, prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What a moment. You think of the angels who knew the Son of God who had been seated on the throne in Isaiah 6, right? John 12 talks about that being Christ in his glory. What was it like for them to see him come back? But now he's forever got a human body. The eternally begotten Son of God took on flesh, and here he is, the God-man, making his way right back to the right hand of the Father, enthroned in glory. What was it like? What was it like? 
Luke also records, if you look at Luke 24, 52, and they worshipped him. <coughs> Appropriate reaction, right? Yeah, there, there he is, right before their eyes. He has died for their sins. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He's been with them over the intervals of 40 days. And there he is ascending right before their eyes. And what do they do? They worshipped him. To take from Jesus' conversation with Thomas, blessed are those who haven't seen what they saw and worship. You didn't see what they saw, but how neat is it to think that you are worshiping him today? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. This has also, I think, uh, very important Christological ramifications, meaning as a result to who Jesus is, as it relates to who Jesus is. They worshiped him. Uh, think about it. As one commentator noted, they offered this worship to an absent Savior. It was therefore an act of religion and was the first religious homage that was paid to Jesus after he had left the world. So you picture them worshiping him as he's ascending and they're still worshiping him. And one argument is this is an act of worship. So some people who would say, yeah, but that word that's used there, I mean, it could be just like paying homage to. Like, that's what it could be. Okay, hold on one moment there. Luke uses this word only three times in the Gospel of Luke. He uses it twice during the temptation of Jesus, where Satan is soliciting Jesus to worship him. And Jesus says, you shall worship only the Lord God two times. And then it's used here. And I don't think we have here merely an act of homage. Like, oh, he's a great man. That's a great man who's going up into the sky. No, even as Thomas had said on Resurrection Sunday evening, calling Jesus Lord and God, they understood they were dealing with deity, the eternally begotten Son of God. Not to mention, by the way, if, um, if it was wrong what they were doing, if it was um, wrong, you would expect the angels who were there to stop them. Because angels didn't want to receive worship themselves. And doubtless, if they were doing something wrong, the angels would have stopped them from doing that. Like, no, that's not right what you're doing. It was right because Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, One other note, Adam Clark had referenced that acts of civil respect are always performed in the presence of the person, Right? So if you're going to think about it as paying homage, I think that would be a wrong way to understand it, and that's usually done in the presence of a person. So there are some, um, some other witnesses to the deity of Christ right there as you look at um, Luke 24, 52. All right, let's go back to the book of Acts. Back to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 10 now. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So you're trying to imagine the scene. There they are, their eyes steadfastly set into heaven, probably looking to see Jesus ascend for as long as they can. But then a cloud receives him out of their sight. And then we see that two men stood by him in white apparel. So even as there were two angels who were by the tomb, in the empty tomb, in white apparel, here are two men who are really angels. They appear as men. You see that very clearly if you looked at Luke 24, verse 4, and Luke 24, verse 23. The same ones who are described as having the appearance of men are clearly identified as angels a little bit later on in Luke's gospel. So these men dressed in white apparel are angelic beings. Note also how many there are. Two. 
There were two in the tomb. There were two here. Think of the Old Testament. That legal matters were to be established upon the witnesses of upon the um, the witness of two or three witnesses. So here you have two angelic witnesses who are bearing witness to the ascension and are going to provide a little bit of needed clarity for the apostles. In verse 11 we read, who also said, that's these angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, first I want to call your attention to something here. The way in which the apostles are addressed. See how they're addressed? We could easily overlook this, but I think this is very important and precious. Men of Galilee. All of the apostles were from Galilee, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who's not there at this time. So the angels are identifying these men as men of Galilee. Now Galilee was in the northern part of the land of Israel. Galileans, you might remember, had a very recognizable accent. That's part of the reason why when Peter denied the Lord Jesus, his accent betrayed him, and they kind of knew who he was because he had the speech of a Galilean. You could see Matthew 26, verse 73, and Luke 22, verse 59. Now, I won't go into this in extended detail, but just follow me along this easy thought trail. Judeans, those who lived in the southern part of Israel, looked down upon Galileans, generally speaking. And Galileans looked down upon the people in Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the, the land of Galilee. It was like one of the towns. So you had this interesting thing happening in the culture. The Judeans look at the Galileans and like, oh, you know, the, the, those guys, they're like the, the lower rung of society. And then the lower rung of society is looking at the people in Nazareth and like, no, they're the lower rung of society. And don't you find it amazing that Jesus Christ would be from Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, yes, but he would be called a Nazarene. And then not only that, but Galilee, the place that was looked down upon by so many of the Judeans, that's where he calls his apostles from, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. They were going to come from the land that was looked down upon. So Jesus knows what it's like to identify with outcasts, with those who are the looked down upon ones in societies, and then he chooses those who would be perceived to be nobodies. To be amazingly used somebodies for his glory. Men of Galilee. I, I love that. It just reminds me of who the Lord Jesus is. He's the one who could identify with the outcast. He's the one who uses the ones that the people in this world say, no, they're of no use. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Amazing. Second, uh, the angel's question. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now, there could be a lot that could be said about that. That was, I think, among other things, probably a nudge in the direction of what they had to do. Like, you, you have work to do. First, you've got to go wait in Jerusalem. You can't just stand here looking into the sky uh, relentlessly. You've got to go and do what he has told you to do. What did he tell you to do? To wait in Jerusalem. And not to give away where we're going to be sometime in the future, but if you look at verse 12, they did it. So by God's grace, they did it. Luke tells us right away, they returned to Jerusalem. So they got the nudge, and they got about what God had told them to do, what Christ had told them to do. And then the angels give a statement that Jesus' absence was not permanent. He said, or they said, he would return. They said, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven 
will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So there's an element in which they're comforting the apostles. Look, this isn't the end. Because they were doubtless longingly looking like, wait a minute, is he actually gone? Is 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 this it? And they're reminding them in this moment, no, no, he's going to return in like manner. This isn't the end. And you're going to see in Luke's gospel, just as Jesus promised his disciples, their sorrow was turned to joy. And they began to rejoice. But quick, remember what we believe as Christians, right? Among the many things we believe, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that God is one in essence and three in persons, that we are depraved as sinners, that we inherited a sin nature. We also believe that Christ died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that he uh, ascended into heaven. We We believe these things, but we also believe that he's going to return you get a little bit of the doctrine of Jesus' return from what these angels say. This is what you learn just from what they say. We learn that Jesus' return would be visible. His ascent was visible, and his descent, his return, will be visible. Jesus had spoken about this during his earthly ministry as well, but they're reinforcing it nonetheless. Jesus ascended in a glorious way. Jesus will return in a glorious way with his father's angels, and so on. Jesus ascended from a specific geographical location. Jesus will descend to that specific geographical location. Amazing. Amazing. He ascended bodily. He will return bodily. He doesn't forfeit the humanity that he has. He ascended bodily. He will return bodily. And so they told them, essentially, uh, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? They had things they had to do. They had to wait in Jerusalem. They had to be about the business. They should have been about the business of rejoicing. And they got to it. If you look in Luke's gospel, now back to Luke, Luke 24, verse 52, we're told that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus had told them in John 16 that their sorrow would be turned to joy. Good reminder, his words are true. He always keeps his promises. The time frame may not be the time frame that we like, but you can be sure he will always keep his promises. His word will always be proven true. And now they return to Jerusalem with great joy. What were they rejoicing about? I mean, I, th- I think we could just start making a list that is very legitimate rather easily. Right? Jesus told them that they were going to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, this new covenant promise, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen. So they're excited. They just saw him ascend into heaven, and angels told them, this isn't the end. He's going to descend in like manner. They're rejoicing, and the list could go on of reasons why they were rejoicing. But they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then we're told in verse 53 that they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Um, some of the best manuscripts don't include the word praising. It includes the word blessing God. And that's essentially how Luke ends his account. The word amen, not in the oldest uh, manuscripts as well. And there you get a good glimpse of that moment when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into this today. I'm just going to kind of preview it in closing. Where I want to go, Lord willing, next week is to say, What then are the benefits of having the greatest friend in the highest place? It makes such a difference. If you think about what the scriptures say about this ascended one, him being seated at the right hand of the Father, what are the implications of that? Where does it say that in the scriptures? 
What about his high priesthood? I told you what I would imagine the father saying to the son as he entered into heaven using language from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You could also imagine the father saying, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, even as he says in Psalm 110 as well. There's so much, so much for us to dive into, Lord willing, next week. What I want to leave you with today is simply this. One of the best ways, in my opinion, it's my opinion, one of the best ways to get your mind off of earthly things, not to the point of neglect, where you're neglecting earthly responsibilities. No, I don't mean that, not even in the least. But one of the best ways to set your hearts on things above is to remember, to use language from Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have union with Him. And in a very real way, even though He's there at the right hand of the Father, you have been raised with Him. You've been raised together to sit in heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the best ways, it's not the only way, but I think it's one of the best ways to help get your mind on things above so that you will be better prepared to do earthly good is to think of the significance of Jesus' ascension. So maybe you begin with recalling the event. You meditate on the verses that we studied today. And you think of how glorious it was. You imagine heaven celebrating him as he returns to the right hand of the Father. When he returns and is enthroned and that glorious moment. And you do what the disciples did. You worship him as well. And you start setting your mind on things above. You imagine this moment. But then Lord willing, next week we will consider the benefits of having the greatest friend in the highest place. And oh, they are many. They are many. With that being said, let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Father, thank you for your Son who not only died for us and rose for us, but he's the one who ascended for us. Thank you for that glorious moment. Thank you that we get to see it through the eyes of faith as we study the Scriptures. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son at your right hand the glorious one who's above all principality and powers, the one who, after making the propitiation, being the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-appeasing offering, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you for our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Oh, Father, I pray that the, the blessed truths that we consider today will be burned in the minds and hearts of your people, that there will be an excitement, that the things of heaven will become a little bit more real, as it were, in their, in their heart and mind. Doubtless they are, Lord, but I pray you'd impress these truths further upon all of our hearts so that we might have great joy and that we might worship even as the disciples did. But help us, Heavenly Father, even as we gaze into heaven, as it were, through the lens of faith studying the Scriptures, help us, Lord, to be the witnesses that you've called us to be, the light that you've called us to be in the here and now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.